Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. My guest today is Tony Patterson, who some of you may recall from episode 45, Doomsday. Tony is a petrol pump attendant extraordinaire, part-time garden gnome, and his life story was the inspiration for the Harlem Shake. So hi Tony, how's it going? Uh, very good, Dan. Thank you. How are you? Um, I'm doing well. How are you dealing with the fame of your uh, your life uh, being immortalised in, in the Harlem Shake? Uh, <laughs> quite uh, well, actually. Um, Water for ducks back? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I mean, you've had a lot of uh, brushes with uh, worldwide celebrity over the years, so it's uh, it's not surprising you've 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 uh, you've had no trouble along those lines. So. Getting into some of the perhaps lesser-known aspects of your life, how long uh, have you been a role player? Uh, I started in, I think, I was trying to remember, like around 86 uh, when I started high school, uh, there was a, um, a Warlock of Firetop Mountain was in the school library. Right. And, and it became a... a kind of everyone was getting it out of the library and playing it together over the two weeks you were allowed to get it out for and stuff. Mm. And uh, and shortly after that, uh, one of my friend's mothers bought him uh, Redbox D&D, so the basic set for mm-hmm. Dungeons & Dragons. Right. And uh, he wasn't into it at all. I'm not right. too sure why she bought it for him, but she did, and so he gave it to me. Wow. And, uh, yeah, then I started playing that with some friends in, in Manapuri, where I grew up. Right. Uh, which is about a town of 600 people or so. Right. Uh, so we used to play that every night after school for uh, three or four years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's where I started playing. Right, um, and how did you find that your uh, your interpretation of the rules meshed with, you know, the first time you met somebody else who had, pl- had played the game? Did, do you feel like you got it mostly right or were you playing <laughs> a vastly different game? We uh, It was quite amusing because we... I guess you would say we power gamed it a bit. So uh, the guy who was playing the wizard would make incredibly powerful spells and we would not worry about balance. We would just, just be like, well, that's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll right, do that. Right. And right. and then uh, at uh, later on in high school, we played a game of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons with one of the older guys, mm-hmm. I think a seventh former. Right. And uh, he... Uh, <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, you can just play your normal characters. So we turned up and he's like, Wow, that spell's really powerful, and then killed the wizard <laughs> with something. <laughs> That's right. I will not was, suffer a witch to live. Yeah, pretty much, that was our introduction to a kind of hardcore dungeon mastering. Where, right, right. Where if something didn't, he didn't like something, it was either killed or horribly muted. Right. And how did you? Um, like, it sounds a little bit like initially the telling of the story was far more collaborative than perhaps um, in, it was intended. Is that would that be accurate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we just kind of um, we just took the monsters out of the book and just I don't know. I can't even remember if we made actual dungeons or anything. Not a lot of times we just had arena combats and uh, just invented spells and powers and things like that. And and just kind of I don't know if it was really playing by the book at all, except for character creation. Right. Really. Yeah. And did you find any? Um any people that were negative about Dungeons and Dragons in, in general during you know your early years of, of playing the game? Um, no, not really, because uh, there were only very few people who played it in, in around school, and that and I don't think it was that well known. 
mm. really, in, in such a small town. So, yes. um, yeah, no, I, I don't recall anything anyway. I mean, my parents had no problem. Uh, uh, I just had to buy most of the stuff I wanted myself right. uh, or get it from my grandparents and stuff when I went to visit them in, in Vicargill, which was the big smoke. Right, so. yeah, because Lake Manapuri <laughs> is uh, is in the south of, of the South Island of New Zealand and that's where there's hydroelectric yep. stuff. Was the hydroelectric it's, made at that point? Oh, uh, yeah, it was. That's Yeah, my father worked there, so, yeah. Right. And so Invercargill counted as the big smoke. Now, the, the big Invercargill, probably in 1986, did it have, like, 40,000, 50,000 people, not even that many. Yeah, 20 to 40, I think, right. if that, yeah. And so what sort of a gaming culture was there? Because I know that uh, Nelson, um, when White Wolf became tremendously popular, Nelson is in the north of the of the South Island. That's probably got a, a much bigger population now than, than, I think it was possibly about 25 or, or 30,000 mm-hmm. people. I think it was what was in those days called a cathedral city. Um, <laughs> basically, any town that had a cathedral was considered a, a, was considered a city. Um, by default, even though there wasn't really a population there to support it. So there yep. were probably a similar number of, of, of people that were there, and, and there wasn't really anywhere that you could get role-playing stuff, at least not that I was aware of. Anything that I got, I had to order, and that had to come from America. So it took you know, a couple of months or so at least for it to um, for it to show up. It wasn't so much that boats were slow, although they were. Um, there was more a case of it wasn't such a simple thing as going on the internet and, and ordering it, right? You had to... You know, you had yeah. to get your bookstore to, to phone somebody who would phone somebody, I presume, and then and then place this order. So, um, where in Invercargill did you did you get your role playing stuff from? Uh, there was a department store, uh, Smith and Smith, it was called, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a toy section. And the only uh, things I ever got from there, I think, were some AD and D books and modules mm-hmm. and Twilight Two Thousand. Right, nice. Did you ever play Twilight 2000? Uh, No, I made a million characters for it, Mm -hmm. uh, but could never convince anyone to play it. Mm. Or or I I think the the system was just like, wow, this is uh, cool. So I believe, I think we played like a cut down kind of our own version of it with Lego soldiers and stuff like that. Right. Using a lot of the stats for guns and stuff, but not the actual, yeah. Not the actual system itself. Hmm. All right, so you had the red box, and then you had uh, yep. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And what did you play subsequent to that? Uh, we went through a phase where we bought an awful lot of BattleTech, right? Uh, and played very little of it. But mm. <laughs> just you know, they bought our AeroTech and CityTech and mm. and all those kind of things. So we had all that and Car Wars. Yeah, oh yeah, Car uh, Wars. I remember Car Wars. It was just it was excruciating to play because <laughs> yeah. at, at any moment. Something just go horribly wrong, and then that was that was the end of the whole. Uh, that was the whole end of the whole game. Did did you find that as well? Did you guys finish the rules so it wasn't quite so brutal? Or uh, no, we quite enjoyed the brutality of it. I seem to remember. So right. it, we were always going trying to headshot people in their cars or on their motorcycles, or mm. you know, or if I was, I typically made buses or RVs and just tried to smash people. Right, right. I was a bit of a thug, I think, in Cowboys. <laughs> yeah, the only sort of um, contact I had with that type of thing was when we got Middle Earth, sort of the group of players that yep. played Motowaka where, uh, where I grew up. Um, and, yeah, we would we would play Dungeons & Dragons, but we would take the um, Middle Earth... Um, critical tables, and if you rolled a twenty, you could then go ahead and roll on the on the critical table for uh, for Middle Earth. And I seem to remember a disproportionate number of uh, you know uh, 
shot through shot through both ears. Unfortunate, <laughs> un- unfortunate lummox killed immediately. Any earwax removed, I think, is the is the yeah. line from that. Or, or stumble over an imaginary deceased turtle. I think is the other is the bit from it. But yeah, that that's that's the closest I ever came to sort of playing with the so the brutal end of yeah. um, end of gaming. So you you got into Car Wars and and BattleTech, and and that yeah. took you up to probably World of Darkness time, did it? No, actually, I never played. Uh, I don't know anyone who played World of Darkness until I moved to Christchurch. Right. Um, after uh, after the car wars and that, just like you were saying, we, there was a guy who was heavily into Middle Earth, so we moved to Merp and then Rollmaster right. and uh, played for three or four years, I think, right. Right. Uh, with those two, uh, where our characters all had stats over 100. Right. Or, and Rollmaster. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah it's hard. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I can see where that. So, okay, yeah, that's some yeah. min maxing there, or not even some min max, or some max maxing. No, just some max maxing, yeah. and it was it was pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so we played that and a bit of Top Secret as well. Top Secret SI. Right. Yep. Yeah, I bought Top Secret. I think in England um, in 1989, um, and I was staying with my grandparents at the time who um, lived in Norfolk in a place called West Winch, which is a, a relatively, it was sort of a, almost, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a retirement village because it was just a village with <laughs> lots of retirees in it, but it certainly had that that feel to it. Um, and so I spent an awful lot of time in my uh, in my room uh, in their house reading uh, Top Secret and, and sort of imagining what it might be like to actually play it with a, uh, play it with a real person. Um, and I quite <laughs> liked it, but... I never, I never got a chance to uh, to go ahead and, and play it because one of my earliest experiences with something other than Dungeons and Dragons was trying to get Cloak and Dagger. Um, ah, yes. Which the movie was made about, but I never managed to get a hold of that. So when I saw Top Secret, I thought that'll be just as good, but it really wasn't. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so a lot of lonely fun there. It seems to be a feature of uh, of, of New Zealand um, role players that I've spoken to. There's a lot of lonely fun in their early years of yes. making dungeons that nobody goes in and making characters that, uh, that nobody ever, making characters you never get to play. Yeah, yeah, especially with a lot of the systems like Twilight 2000, where the character generation is such a big part of the game and actually quite fun if you're into that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so uh, role master Middle Earth, and then what? Yep. Uh, then I it would have been after that that I came to Christchurch to go to university, uh, and met people like Scott Rankin at mm-hmm. uh, at the university gaming club, right. and so then we played things like I think we played Mick Warrior for a while, right, uh, and met. Uh, Craig and Richard and played Chivalry and Sorcery and RuneQuest. Yeah, yeah, they like those, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of my introduction to more, I guess, role-playing, role-playing, as right, opposed sure. to the kind of gonzo, over-the-top, make stuff up all the time that I had been playing for the last sure. eight years or so. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, which was quite good. And I think Scott's own system Yes, that yeah, Scott. Yeah, I've never actually um, experienced the Scott Rankin generated system, but he was very much a thinking man's role player. He's always doing yes. that type of thing, but I never experienced the actual uh, the actual game itself. I'd like to get him on the show sometime. His brother, um, for for listeners that perhaps don't recall, his brother is uh, David, who was episode number nine, if I remember rightly. Yeah, way back. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, so that was at. Uh, 
uh, what was it called? Fug Sock, it might have been called at that time. Yeah, something like that, yes. Um, yeah. And that was about 94, 95, or yep. earlier than that. Yeah, in 93, I started uh, university right. in Christchurch, so right. around that time, yeah. Right. Um, and then I kind of, yeah, and then I had a large patch where I didn't play anything because I was playing Magic the Gathering and right. Legend of the Five Rings kind of card games. Right. Uh, with a sprinkling of Earthdawn, I seem to recall. I think. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, yeah, there are a few people that run into Earthdawn. So, what uh, do you still have any of your Magic cards? Uh, very, very few. Uh, not. Did you, did you save only yeah. the valuable ones, or did you make a deck and then just give the rest away? No, I, I have no idea of value, unfortunately. So, when I was a lot younger, I traded away a lot of my good cards for right, cards sure. that I thought were pretty awesome, right, uh, yeah. which turned out to be not so. You know, valuable. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, did you ever have a Mox anything or a, or a Black Lotus that you were? Uh, um, no, no, I didn't have any of those. I had a lot of the, uh, uh, what were they called, the dual lands right, at that yep, stage. Yeah, yep. yep. That was about as good as it got for me, I think. Yeah, I, I seem to recall having a uh, Mox Pearl and I, oh, traded nice. it, yep. and I traded it for a Phantasmal Terrain, if I remember rightly. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that... Uh, in the fullness of time, I'll get the better of that uh, of that deal. But <laughs> but I know that uh, I'm not sure if you knew um, not sure if you knew Mason uh, Ma, but um, uh, yes, and I yes. don't know if I told the story already. But I'll I'll go ahead and and, and retell it um, for perhaps listeners that didn't hear me discuss it previously. Back in those days, um, Magic the Gathering was like a license to print money, and the shops would would sell out of them as quickly as they as they came in. But one of the things about the revised edition was that um, the packaging was actually slightly see through. So Mason would go into the uh, would go into the shop, and he must have had some kind of sweet deal with the owner because. Um, they only used to give him the box, and he would go through the box, and he would take a look at all of the cards in the box through the through the plastic wrapping until he got to the to the rare, and then he'd call out what the rare was um, to for whoever wanted it, and then the person somebody put up their hands and grab it, and then they go ahead and pay for it. And every once in a while, he'd go through and see what the rare was, and he'd just put that one down for for himself. So <laughs> I think that he had, um, I think in the end he might have had, I don't, he had three or four maybe black lotuses and. Uh, and certainly a, a good number of uh, good number of moxes, um, plus I think all the berserks that existed um, in Christchurch <laughs> at that time. Um, but yeah, so that was uh, yeah that took up a bit of my time. But I don't think I was ever as super serious um, about it. I had white, I had a white and blue deck, and I had Sarah Angels and multi lands right. and and that sort of thing. But but yeah, that um, didn't quite consume me in the same way as it seemed to to consume some folks. So when you came out the other side of of Magic the Gathering, considerably poorer. Um, what <laughs> yes. did you uh, What did you get into then? Uh, for a long time, uh, nothing. And then uh, we kind of started the current gaming group that we've got uh, now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think around in my early twenties was when I had my son, and that kind of put a halt to a lot of the the gaming uh, for a good long time. I kind of lost track of a lot of people and and. Only kind of picked them up a few, like five or six years later. Right. Um, and then we've kind of gone back to, we started with, I think, 3.5 D&D when that came out. Right. So, and this picked up from there and continued on with uh, a stint with fourth edition. Right. Um, and now onto a whole kind of variety of games like Apocalypse World and Dungeon World and, 
and yeah, just pretty much anything that comes out these days. Call right. of Cthulhu we're playing at the moment, I think. Right, nice. I um, for for those that perhaps haven't joined the the dots here, um, Tony's regular gaming group um, consists of uh, two other people who've been on the show: Farrell Fosterline, who was episode number eight, and uh, Donald Gardner, the heavyset man, um, <laughs> who is uh, who's episode ten. Um, so that's sort of the, the the gaming group that they've got to go in there and. In, in Christchurch, so I wanted. I was particularly interested in uh, in your impressions of Dungeon World. I've not read anything. Um, I've not read anything about it. Uh, almost specifically for the purposes of getting your impressions of it, and and for okay. people that are considering considering picking it up. So, can you give us a little bit of the background of Dungeon World, and then your um, your feelings about you know what it's like to run it, and uh, what sort of things people might find in it that they might enjoy. Yeah, sure. Um, it, I mean, it's essentially Dungeons and Dragons uh, with a, a very simple system based off Apocalypse World where uh, you have some moves that you can do and they have to tie into the fiction somewhat. For example? And, uh, for example, hack and slash. So whenever you're trying to attack something, you use the hack and slash move. Right. And, and basically you just roll 2d6 and add your appropriate hack and slash stat, which I'm at the moment I'm playing a bard, so mine is uh, dex, I think, because I'm using a rapier. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then if you roll high enough, then you pull off your, your action. If you don't roll high enough, then you may pull off your action, but also some unforeseen things might happen right. as well. Yeah. So yes, like, and. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's very fast mm-hmm. and... Um, it's got a lot of kind of player interaction. So we basically start off building the world uh, together and you can we just add in details when we feel like it. I think one of my bard powers is when I come across a strange and unusual creature, I have heard of it before so I can tell the tale of what it is and maybe what some of its abilities are. Right. And then and then I have to also tell how I have heard this or how I know this. So. Right. Yeah. So. Okay, so, so, in terms of a transition, then, like to say, for example, somebody's had enough of fourth edition, um, mm-hmm. and they're aware that fifth edition is coming out, but they'd like to try something a little bit different along those lines. What sort of um, what sort of things would could somebody expect to be different, and what could somebody expect to be similar, and and what sort of advice maybe would you have for somebody who was who was looking at perhaps picking up a game like Dungeon World, who's been a traditional sort of D and D type guy or girl? Um. It's it's I think it's still quite D and D ish, uh, just with a, a much simpler system. So you still have your clerics who cast you know can heal and and cast other spells and turn undead. You still have your wizards who do arcane magic. Um, so it, it's m- more like a free form pre fourth edition D and D I guess. Um, We've never used a battle map or miniatures as far as I can remember so far. Mm. Uh, it's a lot faster, simpler. Um, yeah, just just leaves a lot more up to the... It's more, I guess it's a bit more player-driven than traditional Dungeons & Dragons, right. uh, which may be a, a turn-off or a turn-on for some people. Right. Um, yeah, so... And, and being a Dungeons & Dragons type guy, I know you guys play a whole bunch of different things, but, yep. but um, that's... 
I don't know if it would be fair to say that's your favourite, but um, that's something, you, those sort of stories, something you gravitate towards. Would that be accurate? Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is, yeah, yeah one of my favourites, definitely. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, would you, like, what if you heard about uh, Dungeons and Dragons Next or whatever it's going to be called, 5th edition, um, mm-hmm. and what are your impressions of it in relation to what you, you know about 4th edition? Um, I've got, I, I got the first playtest packet of it, but I haven't looked at it much after that. I right. ran the Keep on the Borderlands that came with it, I think, right. Right. Um, for the guys one night. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it. I think it's good. I'm not sure if they can keep to their kind of mandate of a D&D for every D&D player because mm. of fourth edition and, you know, if you compare fourth edition and, say, AD&D first edition, they're quite different. Mm. Um, so I'm not too sure how you can join those players together and there's an awful lot of anger on the internet <laughs> between those players. Yes, uh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a lofty goal and uh, hopefully they can do something. I I just thought when we played it that I could just grab my copy of, like, you know, the basic D&D or AD&D first edition and just play that instead. Right, right. So, so is it's not yeah. sort of – there aren't a lot of skills and so forth or are there – is it all? Is it skills based or, um, or class based? I'm, I'm, it's class based. So I'm not really up to date. I think you you pick a class, and then you also pick a background, which adds some things to your class. I believe, right? Um, like a certain skill or or some some kind of feats or or something like that. Right. Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't looked at it really recently. Oh, that's, a, that's a shame. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, I'm so disappointed. That's, that's all right. I'm sure most people here have, have read a little something about it. I don't want to go into it too deeply, but uh, I was certainly interested to get your impressions of, uh, of Dungeon World and, and also what you, you knew about 5th edition. So anyway, on with the Inside the Role Player Studio type questions mm. then. What's your favourite book or supplement other than um, Victoria, of course? <laughs> I think my favourite book is the... Uh, original Deadlands uh, book, the the first edition of Deadlands. Right. Um, I'm a big Western fan, mm-hmm. uh, especially spaghetti westerns. I love Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. uh, and so when the, and I owned a lot of uh, Western Lego when I was a kid. Right. And loved it. And then uh, when that came out, and I picked it up just on a whim because it. it said Western with spaghetti and meatballs or something on the back of it, I can't quite recall, sure. uh, and read it, it was just, it just kind of blew my mind because we had just been playing D&D or whatever and, and here's a system where you build your character by drawing a deck of cards mm. and, you know, you cast spells by or building poker hands and dealing with demons and, and things like that and you can build gas-powered um, machine guns and, and all kinds of crazy sure. stuff, right, right. and it was just yeah, it was just so out there right. uh, from what I had read and stuff, and also meshed so much with what I liked mm. that um, yeah, I just love it, and I like we've played it quite a bit, and I like I love running it. It's just it can be a real drag to run because of the so many different systems that it has in it and right. everyone's completely different. So Yes, I was going to actually ask you about that because has because the idea of using the cards was particularly good in terms of a, you know, and maintaining sort of the theme of the game or, or at least uh, the flavour of the game and I'm a firm believer 
and you know your 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 system should reflect the type of action that you want to see occurring mm-hmm. occurring during the game um but on the downside of that um for deadlands do do you feel that there's just too much going on there's too much for when you first start i think before you get used to it uh it can and combat can be very slow um while everyone's kind of working out how things work um and unfortunately as we'll get to i think a bit a bit later i i tend to flip between systems quite a lot as a as a gm right uh and often we would, with a certain players, we would never get far enough into it for everyone to become comfortable. Right. Um, so, yeah, every time we picked it up again, it would require a lot of relearning and uh, a different player would be playing the Huckster, which is the, the spellcaster. So right. they would have to, you know, learn the hands of poker right, <laughs> for sure. a start if they yeah, didn't yeah. already know. Yeah, yeah which exactly. Is, and it's quite convenient because Donald Gardner would often turn up wearing a T-shirt of his, which has got all the hands of poker on it in order, right. <laughs> which, sure, is yeah, quite, is, which yeah, was quite useful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, look, and I just happened to be wearing my shirt again. Yeah, yeah but that, that exactly. sort of gets down to that uh, that barriers to play type thing, right? mm. where like playing the game is is just part of it. You know, learning the game is another part of it. And while I do enjoy um, reading other role playing books. Uh, that's something that can be a turn off um, when I'm when I'm playing a game I haven't read the book for is you know mm-hmm. or learning all of these rules I find that it sort of does something for my for my sense of immersion now, I'm probably not alone in that but um, mm-hmm. but even so you know like that's such a great mechanic um, it's just a shame that it wasn't more pared down so that it was easy for people to understand yeah. um, sort of across the board it could have because essentially um, it's just a randomizing element just like dice are and you know perhaps they could have you know used that system to um to resolve other things also yes right? so well, they have they have now uh released the savage worlds version of deadlands right um which is a kind of a generic system mm. and so it's pulled all of the kind of the different spell casting the indian shaman or the uh uh, blessed who can cast miracles and things they all kind of use the same system right now um and I, i've read it but it kind of even though i've complained a lot about the the different systems and and how difficult they were that was kind of its charm for me as well yes. yeah and yeah. that's what i was going to say is that the new editions does done away with the cards altogether right uh I think you can still use them in, in casting. If right. you're a huckster, I believe you've got a pool of power points. Right. But if you run out, then you can go to cards and try and make a deal with right. with whoever. Right. Yeah. Um, mm. So is there anything that you that's coming out that you're looking forward to? Uh, Mage the Ascension 20th Anniversary Edition, I guess, right. would be would be the big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, For sure. For me too, yeah. Yeah, I've never run or played it, uh, <laughs> but I enjoy reading it. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's one of my. Uh, I mean, I've said it before; it's one of my favourites. But yeah, I'm interested to see what the what the the twentieth edition is going to uh, is going to look like. It's. Do I remember correctly that there's a Kickstarter for that? I'm just going to look that up right now. But um, are they they look are they doing Kickstarter Mage? Is that Yes, it should be later this year, I think. Uh, Yeah. I think around near the end of the year. Right. Okay, here we go. There's the, uh, I'm just looking at something right now, but um, 
my hope is uh, that at some time in the not too distant future, I'll be getting Bill Bridges on the uh, oh, wow. on the yep. show. So, so yeah, that's um, I might better get a little bit more um, information about what was going on at uh, at White Wolf, and then maybe another opportunity to talk about Mage the Ascension. But uh, one of the other things that while we're while we're talking about about Kickstarter is um, there's the Hunters Hunted uh, two is uh, oh, yes. yep. is out, which uh, I'm tempted to uh, which I'm tempted to to buy. I've not really talked about my favorite role playing. Um, I've sort of talked about my favorite role playing book, but the book that I've talked about the most is actually not my, uh, it's not my favorite. It'd be my second favorite. My, <laughs> my favorite book is, uh, is the hunters hunted. Um, oh, right. yes. that's the, that's the, the book that, um, that's the book for me that really solidified my ideas about, um, not really liking, um, magical things per se i mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy the the struggle of the person that's not magic against these magical supernatural type creatures I'm having said that i really enjoy mage ascension but um <laughs> but you know like just just the the, the difficult struggle on it and i've you may have heard this also um but uh one of the ways that i've had british cinema as opposed to american cinema um Sort of the, the divide between the two of them, at least in terms of a sort of an action sense, is that a British audience prefers um, someone to struggle and uh, yes. to um, to have you know pyrrhic victories or, or or victories that cost them something, or is, is a real struggle to survive type things. Whereas um, American cinema prefers a you know an out and out um, hero who may get some take some knocks along the way, but is but as you know, obviously a hero is sort of in charge of their own destiny, and like you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the nineteen eighties embodied the sort of the American, um, yep. the American hero type thing. Whereas for, from the British from the British side, um, I don't know that. I think that the most popular British hero is probably James Bond. Um, yes. is not the is not the most characteristic. Um, Characteristic British hero, but I'm trying to think of a of a good example of uh, a, a British action hero that embodies embodies that in fiction, um, at least uh, in books, novels. There are plenty of them to choose from. I mean, my personal favourite is John Rebus um, from the from Ian Rankin's Detective Rebus mm. series, which, which yep. I've said before. But um, can you think of any from film that that embody that? Unfortunately, the only one I can think of is John McClane from Die Hard, but that's not not particularly British. Yeah, no, that's well. I was actually going to I was actually going to say that in that respect, it's in, you know in the eighties he was a you know like a or at least in the first film he was really a mm. you know sort of a struggling um, against the odds type type hero, and that was one of the things that I found found appealing about him. But yeah, yeah. I think I've, I've come up blank on there with a good example yeah. of what it is I'm talking about. But but anyway, um, so yeah, so the Major Ascension 20th um, later on this year, um, mm-hmm. probably. And uh, yeah, hopefully an interview with Bill Bridges in the not too distant future. And also, um, I'm looking forward to checking out the Hunters Hunted myself. But for you, it's definitely Mage. Anything else? I think so. Uh, the Kickstarter for the new Mummy uh, game is just finished. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, which I took part in. So I'm just... I've got the PDF and just kind of waiting for the book oh, right. to, okay. roll, to roll its way out to New Zealand. And I know um, Richard is very keen to play that. 
Yes, yeah, he was really excited about Mummy. I never quite figured out why that was because it didn't seem to really (laughs) sort of fit in line with my general impression of what he enjoyed about role playing. But yeah, maybe as I say, I can get him on the uh, get him on the show to talk about that. But and now a couple of things that I saw on um, on G Plus this week. I'm not sure if Mm -hmm. if you sort of keep up with that, but apparently the American Postal Service has, has dramatically increased the price of international shipping and even domestic shipping in America. So right. any any yep. people that have, have set that set their Kickstarter um, up and they've factored in their shipping um, could now instead of falling on the black end could start falling on the red end right. because of those changes mm. in, in shipping. And, and in, a, in addition to that article, I read a number of other articles um, about, you know, I wouldn't go as far as to say the, the perils, of, uh, of Kickstarter, but it just, the more I read about it, the more I see that there are so many factors that can go into making something that seems like a good idea actually become a nightmare that ends up costing you money. Yep, yep. Um, one, um, like I read an article about somebody taking forever to be able to actually, you know, like they end up with boxes and boxes of stuff and then they've got to put everything together and ship it out and... And the amount of time it actually takes, not just to the creative element of producing it, but in fact the you know, but the time it takes then to deal with you know the people that have um, that have you know bought the bought the or backed the project and yep. then um, and then you know waiting for this waiting for the stuff to arrive and rightly so, but it is strange the way that I mean actually perhaps strange is not correct. Um, but I'm. I find it interesting that my initial impression of Kickstarter was that it was a place where people would back the idea of a project, um, and then get nothing from it except that the project would be completed, and then they could go from go on from there, and um, you know, go, oh, this right. thing would actually yep. be produced. Then you could actually buy it, right? You basically um, helping to support the production of this thing and then you have to go out and buy it afterward. And I thought, well that's a you know, that's a reasonably good idea. I guess people can put yeah. their money where their mouth is, you know, they they're gonna and then I guess and I don't know if this is the way that it went, but my, my suspicions are it's kind of like an escalating type thing, you know, like on the first on the first Valentine's Day, you know, you, you buy a you know, maybe a dozen roses or maybe just a couple of you know, <laughs> maybe a couple of carnations, right? And then after the first year you've got to top that and then you've got to top that. And then it turns out to be at least in the in the Kickstarter sense, you know, you're, you're sending out hard-covered books and PDFs and stretch goals of this and stretch goals of that and, and all this other stuff. So it stopped being a way to support a project and become a way to buy the project in advance. Yep. Yep. Like a, almost like a pre-order. Like type. a pre-order, yeah. yeah pre-order type scenario. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's good or if that's bad, but um, I, I've got a couple of things that I'm working on right now and, and a year or so ago, I thought, oh, this Kickstarter, maybe that's a, a thing. But the more I, the more I read about it, um, the more I see that it's not, for, at least for me, it wouldn't be the type of solution that I'd be interested in, given that the production costs, at least initially, yep. for the things that I'm working on are not that much. Now, if I was, say, for example, in Fred uh, Hicks' shoes and, and the guys at Evil Hat, um, mm-hmm. with a much broader audience... Um, and you know, like the way that he set it up was was genius, really. Like the the uh, and they got over four hundred thousand, I think, for that for that fake core, um, yeah, wow. fake core Kickstarter. Um, I think in that situation, it's a good way to gauge the you know the levels of, of interest and the sort of things, perhaps that 
that people want. But for somebody just getting started, I have a feeling that it's quite enticing, um, but it brings with it so many perhaps things that you hadn't factored in that it could, you know, it could be overwhelming. Also, I wonder, have you read much about the successful um, delivery of uh, projects? Uh, I... <laughs> I haven't. I haven't actually. Apart from this this mummy PDF which I've received, I also I've backed a few others, including Far West, right. which is the uh, uh, Wuxia kind of Western sure. mashup game, sure. uh, which I think I backed in 2011, right. I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, we're still kind of waiting for the for the book to be finished right. um, and sent out. So yeah, I'm aware there are some. And I mean, I mean, that's not so bad these days because it's actually being updated quite a lot, and we're being kept in the loop as to you know where the books add and and mm, you know mm. what's been happening, which is which I don't mind too much. It's when sure. you know nothing's happening and you're not hearing anything, and mm. it's just I mean, I don't think you've got any recourse. You just kind of have right. to kiss. Yeah, well, that's what I was gonna. That's what I was gonna ask. And like, there is no that. And I read it. And as I say, like I was reading these articles, and one of the things that somebody said was, is you know, if you back a project back it hoping that you'll get it right like mm-hmm. like plan for the worst and you know like hope for the best type scenario you know you're going to um send off your 25 bucks and maybe something will come but but maybe it, <laughs> maybe it won't but but the the flip side of that is i really i don't know if i feel for retailers per se but you know i see how retailers um would be leery about something like that who'd want to put in a you know like tie up some of your capital um, mm. That you're using for getting actual books on the shelf uh, into Kickstarter, but then of course you're into the whole, you know, um, uh, competition thing too, right? Like these because you know starting out being something that people just back, and then the book would be produced, and you'd go to your game shop and buy it from there has come to be a direct sort of a direct selling scenario, yep. right? Where the actual retailer of the book is is cut out, and I think we talked about that a little bit um, in a, on a previous episode. I don't recall exactly which one, but. Anyway, enough about Kickstarter. So if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And this doesn't mean that you want to you know, slam a particular book, but perhaps just a, a type of uh, game or some sort of style of, of play that's encouraged that, that you don't particularly enjoy. Or yep, maybe something sure. else altogether different. <clears throat> uh, and it, it's not that I would uh, want it to cease to exist, but perhaps if it had been named something different, would be Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition. Right. Uh, if it was not called Dungeons and Dragons, I think it would have probably been a much better game. Right. For me, um, we played it for maybe two years, I think, on and off. Right. Uh, and it, it was good. I mean, I do uh, war gaming as well. Like I play a lot of Blood Bowl and and some of the other Games Workshop kind of war games. Sure. And so. Um, that kind of element of, of it was quite good, but it became to it kind of came to dominate our sessions where we would have two or three hour combats of uh, you know, I slide two squares and, and you know, I mm. move five, you know, one square back and then I can cast the spell and it has a you know, a nine square radius or whatever. And mm. it just kind of I don't know, it just got very weary after a while. Right. Um Especially at the start when the maths wasn't balanced very well. And so you would kind of blow all your powers in the first two or three rounds of a fight. And then the rest of it was just a kind of a slugfest mm. of, 
of hitting things. Right. And but you couldn't say, all right, you guys will win and we'll just move on because a large part of the game was the resource management right. of, of characters and healing and, and mm. all that kind of stuff. So yeah. if you kind of cut to the end of a fight, then, you know, you're kind of doing the game a disservice, I guess, or making it a bit kind of, yeah, I'm not sure, sure. what to say there, but, yeah, you know. So, and so would it be yeah. fair to say then that... Um, because it was called Dungeons and Dragons, you expected a particular type of experience. It delivered, and it didn't deliver the experience that you were hoping it would have delivered. Another experience, um, but that experience would have been fine if you hadn't been expecting the Dungeons and Dragons in the first place. Yeah, I think I remember when it was coming out, they were saying, you know, here are all these sacred cows that we're going to, you know, butcher in the name of making it more fun mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, clerics are not just. You know, someone has to be the cleric because we need a healer, that right. kind of uh, thing, which we I don't think we ever had that kind of problem. But anyway, um, some people must have because it was a big thing. So, um, but my kind of thinking was if you're going to, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, it's that because of those things, it's because a magic user starts off with four hit points and a dagger and, you know, one spell mm. or whatever right. <laughs> and yeah, has yeah. to hide out at, at the back till he becomes, you know, really powerful. Right. Um, if you kind of change the game so fundamentally like that, right. that, that it becomes so different, why not call it something different mm. and, and, you know, just leave the people who enjoy Dungeons & Dragons as it is to play you know, not that they couldn't still play, of course, because I don't think Wizards of the Coast came around and stole people's books back or whatever. But sure, no, no, I know, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, fair yeah, enough. yeah, um, yeah. All right. So if you could but, be a player or a GM, mm-hmm. which would you choose? Uh, GM. Why is that? Because <laughs> now, as a GM, I suffer horribly from ADD where I read about something on the internet or see a book on my bookshelf and instantly want to change whatever I'm running to that game. Right. So, which is very difficult for my players. Right. Um, And unfortunately, when I'm a player, it's even worse. Right. I'll start playing a character and then maybe one or two sessions into it have a better idea of a better character that I'd much rather enjoy. Right, sure. Um, So... And what do you think that comes from? Do you think that comes from you know, your early, you know, your formative years of role playing, where you spent a lot of time, you know, making up characters and, and reading books, and and that's really kind of almost your favourite part of the whole I, uh, thing. I think there's a lot of from when I was a kid to now. There's a lot of pressure on having plot and a good story, and and so when I run something these days. I always, especially the first couple of sessions, I always come home and think, oh, that didn't quite go as I expected it, and I'm pretty sure I could have started that better. Mm-hmm. And and whereas in the old days, you know, we just killed monsters and took treasure and, you know, mm. castles and, and had massive wars with the Warmaster set, I think it was, from Rollmaster. Right, sure. Yeah, that thing was glorious. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so... I don't know. I think as I've got older, my expectations on myself are, are more so, and I'm kind of like 
rather than make things better, I'm more of a oh, I should just scrap it and start all over again kind right. of player. Sure, sure. <laughs> which yeah. is um, which is which I'd really like to get out of, but that's kind of how my mind works, unfortunately. Mm, okay, well maybe we um, can uh, talk about that a little bit uh, later on because I know that we discussed uh, Mage the Ascension, right? That's yes, yeah. Okay, well, that'll that'd be an off an off air conversation perhaps for the future. So, uh, how often do you role play and for how long? Mm. At the moment, twice a week. Uh, for about three to four hours each. Two separate Not, games? Yes. Oh, uh, four separate games. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, we usually run our games every fortnight so, sure. that other, so that we can have different games going at the same time. Sure. And uh, because some people can only make, you know, once a week or something like that. So, oh, I see. Uh, sorry, once a fortnight. Excuse sure. Me. Um, so, <clears throat> and all our game nights are on uh, school nights, so to speak. Right. So su- Sunday night and uh, Monday or a Wednesday. So we kind of try to get started around seven pm and and finish ten to ten thirty. Right. Um, and the same group all the time, or two different groups? Uh, a mix of different people. Um, <clears throat> the well, Sunday night. I suppose night. with each right. with each like two being you know, fortnightly and then twice a week, it gives you the opportunity for literally four different groups. But how much overlap yeah. do you have? Quite a lot. Yeah, right. uh, we, we have a small, there's about mm, eight or nine people in our kind of gaming circle, mm-hmm. regular gaming circle, and right. they're all involved in one of the games at least. Right, sure. So, okay, um, no, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the biggest group we have has seven players, I right. think, and the smallest has three. Right, right. And what's the game with three? Uh, Call of Cthulhu. Right, right. And is that one keeper and two players, or do you have actually four keepers? Uh, four, sorry, yep, so three players. Right. Um, but I believe we're actually going to move to the World of Darkness system, the, the new World of Darkness system, right? Um, because we, we found out our game involves a lot of punching things, right? and uh, Call of Cthulhu doesn't really do punching things very well. Right, sure, <laughs> so, no, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yep. Okay, should males play females? Um, I... Don't really mind. If males did not play females, then I would never have any female characters in any of my groups because sure. we don't have any in their circle. Mm. Uh, and I only know of one uh, who's tangentially related to our circle, even. So, yeah. Do you know uh, many of the groups uh, that operate in and around Christchurch? Because I know that when I played there, there were almost no girls slash mm. no girls that were actually involved in, in role-playing. And, and I've come to discover that that's relatively un, relatively unusual, even um, amongst the uh, University um, Gamers Club. And there were probably, I would say there were at least, you know, between 40 and 50 perhaps, you know, solid uh, members mm-hmm. um, at any one time. I mean, playing different games, but often in the same location. There seemed to be very few, if any, um, girls there so like there was only one girl that I recall being there uh, frequently so we're talking about 2% territory rather than mm-hmm. the, rather yeah. than the 33% territory that most people have uh, experienced do you think that somehow role playing um, and Christchurch for girls don't mix it, it must be because I've I've read you know forum topics and that where saying yeah how many what's the mix of male, females in your group? And it's, you know, can be 50 or more percent mm. usually. And, yeah, I just, I don't know 
Oh, sorry, that's a lie. I do know a, a few here, but they, uh, yeah, they. I mean, wives usually. I think Scott yes. Rankin's wife yes, uh, yes, has so, played yeah. with him a couple of times. Yep. yep. And yeah, that, uh, that's it. I know one girl through uh, one friend that I play with, and she's been playing the same AD and D character for fifteen years or something like that, and right. in one game. So. Right. Yeah. Not, a lot, not a lot of uh, not a lot of girls around, at least in yeah. Christchurch. If you're a role-playing girl in Christchurch and you feel you're being be- um, misrepresented here, then please, uh, Daniel at HazardGaming.com, I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> we, can, we can talk about that. So how do you prepare for a game session? Very poorly. Um, Mostly just looking at other games and wishing you were playing them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll procrastinate a lot, and then on the last, on the day of gaming night, I'll be, you know doing stuff at work and trying feverishly trying to come up with something and usually end up just winging it when I get there. Sure. Um, which, which could account for the fact that the games sometimes fizzle out a lot because, right. yeah, that'll be why I end up feeling, oh, that could have gone better. And, yes, it could have if I had prepared more. Sure. So you yeah. don't like, um, I don't want to say like, but uh, for mm. you a, a free-form game, that has zero or almost no preparation doesn't appeal to you? Um, hmm. I'm sort of straying into lonely fun territory here because in a lot of ways, <laughs> if, you, if you have that, um, that type of game that requires other people to be present before you can even generate some kind of a narrative mm. or, or plot, then it removes the opportunity to, um, you know, to have fun um, by yourself with your role-playing game. So... Is it, does that factor in um, at all for you? Um, uh, I'm not sure. I know, uh, uh, like, we started the game of Mage the Awakening uh, of maybe three or four months ago because mm-hmm. uh, I bought a lot of the books and, and read a lot of them and thought this is pretty cool. And then when we started, um, I am quite terrible at explaining mechanics. Right. So... And I, I'm pretty sure you haven't read the Mage the Awakening book, right? Because I remember you talking with Chris about it. Yeah, I got through the first little bit, and when I realised <laughs> that Atlantis was involved, I, right. I sort of switched off a little bit. So no, not really. Yeah. Um, the 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 magic system is, is quite horribly explained in it. I feel, mm-hmm. and and all over the place. Quite a quite a dense book to read. Right. Uh, and so because I didn't have a, a full grasp on the mechanics and I'm also terrible ex- at explaining mechanics, right. then the group didn't really have a full grasp on what they could do or or what it was all kind of all about. So a lot sure. of the that game was kind of flat because I was kind of thinking, well, I kind of came in saying, look, you're mages, you can do whatever you want, right. you know, and, and we're playing, we were playing in the our city here mm-hmm. and set after the earthquake that we had. Right, and so I was like, "You can do whatever you want," but they didn't really know what they could do. Right, and and yeah, kind of. It was kind of a mix of the the system being too complex and a lack of planning. Right, kind of kind of led to the game just just right faltering. They seemed to be having fun, but whenever we tried to do magic, people's brains exploded. Sure, and not not in the game. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Know, I mean, it can. Yeah. yeah, and again, that's one of those barriers to play type. Uh, Type situation, but but maybe we can uh, we can talk about that later on. So, do mm. you or should GMs fudge rolls? Uh, I always roll in the open, right? <clears throat> and I think that's from my D and D games where 
you know, we didn't care if we got killed or whatever. We just Point. rolled with the, the punches pretty much. Mm-hmm. So Do you feel how do you feel about people that don't roll in the open? Um I don't I I don't know if I've ever played with anyone who doesn't. Um yeah, I, I don't think I have any strong feelings about it either way. It's just that's just the way I do it. Yeah. So, well, and enough. I think and I think when I'm running it and do it myself, then other people kind of just follow along. Sure, yep, fair enough. I think, well, yeah. I mean, I think that yeah. I've never known of a situation where players don't roll in the open, but um, I mean, maybe those sort of games exist, but I can't imagine why why that would be. But um, yeah. if you if you could um, if you could become a character in a role playing game, uh, what would it be? As in, you personally began to inhabit a character in that actual world rather than you could play one in, from the safety of your living room? Uh, I think a dual-wielding dexterous fighter is is what I tend to gravitate to in a lot of, uh, like, role-playing games on the computer. Right. So, yeah, that kind of... Kind of I don't know if you remember the show Robin of Sherwood. I I was gonna say you remind, you're, you're talking about the um, that was one of my and favorite the, dudes too, like the Saracen yeah. that was in that. What was his yeah. name? Uh, Nazir. No, that's right. Was it was Nazir. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah, the, yeah I, I, th- I found him quite inspirational too. I mean, in a and yep. from a role playing uh, from a role playing perspective. So um, yeah. So would you like to meet Nazir in uh, in England at the time of King Arthur? I mean, um, King that, Arthur through Robin Hood. Yeah, that would be. I mean, that would be pretty cool. Uh, the the image is is tarnished, of course, because of the Forgotten Realms and the, you know, the hordes of scimitar-wielding rebellious dark elves that... Right, that, right. Yeah, <laughs> that, that spawned. That's yeah. right, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure, but, yeah. Uh, but so I always try and make sure that my, my influences are, are not Forgotten Realms and actual, you know, cool Saracen. I think he might have wielded scimitars too actually yeah they were, yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure it was uh, <laughs> i'm pretty sure it was some, some there were some scimitars in there somewhere okay so who's your favorite villain and why <clears throat> i think uh davros from genesis of the daleks the right. very first time in doctor who he turned up right uh just simply because i think i mean by that stage he's purely evil but i think it was a kind of a misguided Evil in an attempt to to save his his people, right. who who he foreseen being turned into mutants and stuff, he turned them into you know un, unstoppable killing machines and kind of lost his mind at the same time. Right. So, I think that kind of kind of benevolent fascist dictator who who goes a bit crazy. Right. Right. Is is pretty cool. Right. So power corrupts absolutely. Is that the yeah yeah. All right. And so while we're talking about uh, Doctor Who, who's your doctor? Uh, Tom Baker. Tom Baker? Why, to- why Tom Baker? Just because is it a, a purely a time thing? or? Um, no, because I mainly grew up with Peter Davidson. Right. Uh, I just find, especially when he was kind of going really off the cuff at the end of his run and just, just yes. saying whatever he felt like and, and going really gonzo, it right. was just really fun yes. to yep. watch. Yes. So, um, and I remember, you know, getting, uh, <clears throat> uh, copying a lot of videos from the video store, right. <laughs> and, That's right. and watching them, watching them with Richard and Craig and stuff, and and right. just some of those ones like City of Death and and kind of stuff like that. It just the humour is awesome and the story is, you know, really great, cheesy, but not as cheesy as the ones today. I don't, I don't kind of feel right. Sure. Um, so yeah, just. 
just really good fun and and not as much kind of scientific gobbledygook as John Pertwee. Right. Um, yeah, just and yeah, I that, love uh, yeah, yeah. I found John Pertwee a bit hard to take because I yeah. think he was um, also playing Wurzel Gummidge at the same time, right? <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah, and exactly. That, that when he, yeah, when he took his head off and his thinking head and his, the other head and stuff <laughs> like that, I just I couldn't reconcile. I couldn't. I mean, just I yeah. Guess, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't reconcile those two two ideas in my head at the same time. So, um, Tom Baker for the Doctor, and who would be your James Bond then? Uh, I grew up with Roger Moore. I think the first James Bond movie I saw was uh the one with Max von Schreck and the and the Zeppelin at the end. Oh, uh, what was um, that? Is was that, it was that Roger? Was that Roger? What wasn't the Zeppelin? Um, wasn't that Timothy Dalton? Because it was. Uh, no, it was the one and. Uh, oh no, Grace Jones was in it, right? Yeah, and Duran Duran did hung uh, did yes, the soundtrack. Yes, yeah, okay, yeah. A view, oh, a view to a kill. Mm, I think. No, no, view to a kill. That is, that is Timothy Dalton. A view to a kill. Mm, is it? No, I think it's Roger. Moore. Right, I'm going to I'm going to consult the internet immediately yeah. because people need need to know. Yeah. I'm, I'm not able, I don't have the time to go back and edit this. So let's see it. A view to a kill. Are you putting any money yeah. on this, Tony? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Roger Moore. So I'm pretty sure. Sounds a little bit weak. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's 1985, so it could be. And it is. roll, please. You're right. It's Roger Moore. Um, and it uh, yeah it is, it is Grace Jones and yep. that was, the bad guy was uh, Christopher Walken if I remember yes. if I remember right yep. let me just scroll down here it says Richard Christopher Walken so so yeah that was um, yeah that uh, I think the first one that I ever saw was I actually think it might have been the first one I saw in the cinema was um, uh, Never Say Never Again. Ah, okay. Which was yep. the which is the remake of Th- I never quite understood what was going on there, but that was the remake mm. of, uh, of Thunderball, Ball, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never quite figured out how that whole situation uh, transpired, but um, but yeah, I just remember somebody getting smashed with a beaker full of piss <laughs> or something like that, and, yep. and that somehow that killed him. But um, that was a little weird. Uh, but yeah, that um, yeah, I think that probably um, I think that probably Roger Moore. Is my doctor? Is my doctor? Is my James? Is my James Bond as well? Um, but I think that um, I feel like Pierce Brosnan was um, sort of in the Roger Moore mold. Yes. But I think I probably prefer um, Daniel Craig, who's not okay. quite as not quite as hardcore as Timothy Dalton, but mm. with a little bit more. Um, yeah, but not quite as not quite as suave as as um, Sean Connery tried to be, right? Or sort of yep. uh, um, blokey as uh, yeah as as Sean Connery. But uh, but there you go. So, um, do you have any dice superstitions? Only one, and that is my <clears throat> what is referred to as my orange dice of PC slaying. Uh, which is an orange. De- orange is my favourite colour, so I always try and hunt down orange dice whenever sure. I can. Sure. And I only have one, which is a D20, right. uh, which I got from a box of Star Wars minis, I think. Right. And, uh, yeah, it, w- whenever I'm running a game, it tends to roll criticals, like it, they're going out of fashion right. the, the time. And then when I play with it, it's terrible. 
Right, I see. So yeah, that's. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the game science guy, but the, the game science guy. But he'll be uh, he'll be if he's listening in, which seems extremely unlikely. Um, he'll be talking about the effects of the tumbling the dice and what well, it does ah, to, right, the, yes. to the um, to the to the randomness or, or otherwise uh, of it. So if you could role play with four people, um, living or dead. Um, who would it be? And you can't choose uh, people that you currently play with or or deceased family members you'd like to see again. But um, is there anybody in particular that uh, you'd like to get to your gaming table? Yeah, I was I was thinking about this on Friday actually, uh, or yesterday. Uh, uh, so Tom Baker. All right, I see. Yep. Nice tie in there. Yep. Uh, I have to try and remember who else I had. Uh, Does Tom Baker have to play the Doctor? No. I don't know. I don't know if he would be able to help himself, though. Depending on what game you were playing, I think. Right, what game Seems are you going like, to play? Um, I think Deadlands would be quite fun if you right. could if you could play it quite quickly. Right, or maybe sure. Just, like you already just, knew the rules ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Tom Baker, uh, or maybe Mage, and play with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> do you think do you think the Dalai Lama would play an Akashic brother or do you think he'd just Ooh. would you want to play something totally different I wonder if he'd feel stereotyped by he's, playing typecast like, I mean, yeah. when I play mages I always have to play the Akashic brother <laughs> yeah. and I'm not playing not even in your not even in your fantasy scenario Tony Pedersen will I play yeah. an Akashic brother I refuse yeah yeah that would probably not I guess uh who else do I have on my list? His name, uh, Alistair Crowley. All right. Why Alistair Crowley? I think uh, he would, and maybe we would end up playing Mage now that I'm going down this track. I think he would have wonderful ideas of how magic should work in a role-playing game. Right, yeah, you know? sure. Yeah, yeah and, and I've read a lot, I kind of, a few bits about him and, and kind of his his system and that kind of thing and mm. and just uh, yeah I think having been a magic practitioner himself so he'd be able to bring a bit of realism perhaps to the sure to the kind of game and Paul Darrow who played Avon in Blake Seven yeah yep. I think is a is a really great actor, and especially if he played very similar to Avon in Black Seven. What would Avon be? If you play Mage the Ascension and you wanted to play a character kind of like um, Darrow, mm. who would uh, who, what, what would he play? Wow, uh, I'm not sure. See, I can't imagine him doing anything that wasn't um, that that. I can't imagine him doing magic. Yeah. I think, have, this, yeah. I think that this, uh, this selecting these four people, Tony, is a, is a perfect um, sort of reflection <laughs> of your general preparation for role-playing <laughs> role in general. I did have uh, – I just think of, of four people who I've really enjoyed their – well, obviously – not all of them I've enjoyed their acting because I've never seen Alistair Crowley or mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama acting, however. <laughs> and the Academy Award for Best Actor goes to. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, two of my favourite characters have been played by Tom Baker and Paul Darrow, so I think, yeah, I'd quite like to play with them. Okay. And then, I think, 
the Dalai Lama and uh, the Dalai Lama and Alistair Crowley, and you're playing mage. And yeah. he and uh, and so what? Uh, what? And the Dalai Lama is playing anything except an Akashic brother. <laughs> yes, I think so. And Tom Baker, are you going to make Tom Baker play a Son of Ether? Probably, yes. Right, and then Alistair Crowley, a Hermetic Mage. Yes. Yep. Yeah. It'd have to be, wouldn't he, right. to to prove how it wasn't done right in the book. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you weren't doing magic right. Yeah. That's right. And that just leaves Paul Darrow, and mm. I'm not too sure now. Hmm. What do you play? Maybe. Would you want him to be the? Would you want him to want to be a storyteller, perhaps? Yeah, perhaps, or perhaps, uh, hmm, just the. Yeah, so you can't. I can't remember too much from Ascension, but you can't just. You can't not join one of the. One of the uh, groups, can you? Or you could be a hollow one. You I could guess. Be, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you could be a hollow one. Um, and uh, so, do you think the Dalai Lama um, might be perhaps better? Uh, uh, like, would he be a dream speaker? Or perhaps a uh, a celestial chorister. I think maybe. Was it too close as well? Too close. Yeah. To sort of spirit. Yeah. I can't really think of anything. I mean, you did, yeah. Yeah. I don't would know. he even, would he even enjoy a game about seeking enlightenment when kind of that's his purpose and. Yeah, that might be a bit like it, you know, like a busman's holiday, mightn't it? Yeah, too close to his job. It might be like me playing a game where I'm a programmer or something. Yeah, maybe he could be the storyteller. But then you still yeah. wait for something for Paul Derrick. This is this is complicated. Not enough preparation, mm. Tony. Not no, I didn't think about this enough, did I? No, you certainly didn't. Okay, so for all the marbles, Tony, adding up to 100, <laughs> assign points to reflect the relative importance of system, GM, and players. Uh, I think probably 40, 40 player GM and then 20 for system. Why is that? Uh, I think if you have a GM and players that are right into it and and know what they want to do and, and, and are good role players, then the system doesn't really matter. I mean, we've had fun with pretty much every game that we've played, even when the, the system was horrible and, and, and stuff. Um, so I think it, it's more important to get people who want to have fun and aren't ashamed to role-play or act out or whatever and just go for it. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Patterson. That's it for episode 54 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. Now, if any of those questions or comments are actually complaints about the editing of the show, I'm afraid that over the next five or six weeks there will be no improvement. I'm currently in the process of getting a book off to the printers and won't have the sort of time required to do this regular editing type job that I do. You may not consider that to have been very good in the first place, but there you go. So if that's too much for you to bear, then you might want to check back in five or six weeks. But if that's not a problem for you, then until next week, keep talking the walk. <laughs>